Welcome to episode nine of the Ladies of Horror Fiction Presents Stories of Horror. This month's theme is body horror. I'm really excited this month. We had a ton of submissions for body horror. And our first story tonight is The Black Dog by Tracy Fahey. And the second is Kozitska by Gabriella Houston. Before I get into the stories, I'm going to talk a little bit about Tracy and Gabriella. I'm going to do it just like I normally do. I'm going to talk about the author and then read the story. It's uh, body horror seems to be something that women really, really like to write. So let's get started, shall we? Tracy Fahey. Tracy Fahey is an Irish writer of gothic fiction. In 2017, her debut collection, The Unheimlich Maneuver, was shortlisted for a British Fantasy Award. Two of her short stories were longlisted by Ellen Datlow for honorable mentions in The Best of Horror of the Year, Volume 8. In 2018, she co-edited The Black Room Manuscripts 4, which was nominated for a Splatterpunk Award for the Best Anthology in 2019. Tracy is published in over 20 Irish, U.S., and U.K. anthologies, and her work has been reviewed in the Times Literary Supplement. Her first novel, The Girl in the Fort, was released in 2017. Her second collection, New Music for Old Rituals, which I have reviewed, uh, it's fantastic, was released in 2018 by Black Shuck Books. The Black Dog The day I pull my hair so hard that I cry, I know it can't go on. Or to be more precise, that I can't go on. Everything has become muddled and chaotic, infused with anxiety. I operate in a panic zone of uncertainty. I can only work alone. Anything involving other people is problematic. I work on evading anyone who annoys me because I might know, no, I will become unreasonably angry. I am enveloped in a suffocating, selfish fog of dread. The possibility of intimate conversation terrifies me. The simple question, how are you, could provoke any manner of honest and terrible responses. My fear of dogs always present intensifies. The sight of a tense, bristling dog makes me sweat and shake. Even my body is breaking down. My energy dips and wanes each day. I crave sugar and salt, chocolate and meat. My skin itches. My leg has developed patches of eczema like rust on metal, lichen on stone. I scratch them mindlessly till blood leaks under my fingernails to form a perfect burgundy crescent line, separating the white from the pink part of the nails. My chest beats fast staccato, one, two, one, two, like a tight red drum in my chest. I sleep with earplugs in to dim the sounds that might make me panic. I read to dull the thoughts in my head. In moments of lucidity, I am terrified. I sit in traffic thinking, is this it? Is this ever going to end? And most terrifying of all, is it still me? Because you know, it doesn't feel like me anymore. It feels like a bad version, a blurred photocopy. A self of a newsprint smudged with tears. I'm no longer in the driving seat, you see. The black dog. He names it for me, the kind doctor. His eyes squint at me in sympathy. Poor you, he says gently. It's a brute, that dog. I've listed my ailments, those strange pressing urges, the blank undertow of sadness that smothers me night after night. 
I've told him of the fear that disrupts my rest with teeth clenching anxiety and conversely the long, heavy, blank sleeps that sometimes overpower me, so I wake dry mouthed and heavy eyed. Finally, he straightens up, cocks his head to one side, and says quietly, Poor old Jew. It's such an undoctorly statement, I forget to cry. Well, I don't think this is PMS, what you describe. The listlessness, the panic, the overwhelming feeling of sadness. These all tally with the definition of depression. That's when he names it. The black dog. I feel a terrible sorrow mixed with a dawning relief at his diagnosis. His face is calm and kind. Is there a history of depression in the family, he asks. Is there a history of depression in the family? Yes. Yes, there is. I can see that now. Like an ancient poison, it has infected us, generation after generation. I see it now, exposed for what it is in the clinical environment of the doctor's office. I see it in my mother's despairing rages, my grandmother's glassy stare, and the strange, asynchronous workings of her mouth. And now I see it in my own mirror, and the ugly lines at the corner of my mouth. I see it in my flat, panicked eyes. It's a dreadful, quiet homecoming, a recognition of what has always lain beneath. Is it still me? It's been inside, quiet, dark, waiting. As a child, when I bit my hand in rage or pulled my dolls to pieces, was that it? Like a detective, I examined myself for clues. That night, I hit my head off the wall to stop thinking. That was definitely it. Maybe in time I'll be proud of this. I'll see it as part of my family heritage, as genetically distinctive as the dimple in the cleft of my chin. My long fingers are the slight upward tilt of my nose that I see replicated endlessly familiar on strange faces at family funerals. For now, the tears trace lines on my face. A map of erosion, the long, slow slide of hot, salt, over sore skin. I start taking the pills. They are tiny, like little dots of white on my palm. I find it implausible that they can stem such a huge and weighty tide of emotion, but I try. I remember to breathe deeply when I can. As the days go by, the tautness in my chest loosens, little by little. I can now drive my car without visualizing all the possible accidents that will happen. The flickering images of blood and twisted metal begin to pale and recede. I sleep past the white night hour of three in the morning. I say hello, I ask how people are. Once, I caught myself laughing unguarded. Some things don't get better though. As the general anxiety fades, my fear of dogs intensifies. There are so many dogs. They're everywhere. Little dogs bark at me from gardens, short, throaty, angry yaps. When I go by, they hurl themselves against skates in a blurred frenzy of pink gums and sharp white teeth. It's the big ones that terrify me most. I see them throw their large bodies against their leashes, their powerful chests working with ribby muscles as they strain and pull. I stop walking around the city to avoid them. These animals are only domesticated on the outside. I can see them for what they are. In their rolling eyes, their curled snarls, I can see their true nature. They are jackals, wolves, carnivores. The heavy wall of anger and despair is lifting, slowly but surely. 
Now, like a recovering car crash victim, I feel the pain in my limbs. I can't stop eating. Everything tastes pungent and delicious. I can't fall asleep anymore. I crash into sleep, and it's heavy and blank, a flat, implacable wall. It's then the dreams start. The dreams are always the same. I'm walking down a road, a flat, unmemorable country road. It's summer. I can smell the dry heat, the cut shriveled grass. I hear the hum of insect buzz and feel their tiny wings bat against my face. I'm walking parallel to a deep ditch backed by a large dark green hedge. Suddenly I realize I'm seeing with a curious double vision, one that remains fixed on the dusty road and the other which has risen to give me a bird's eye view. Behind the hedge I see him, a huge black dog, crouching, his hackles raised and his powerful body coiled and tensed like a bowstring. I know he is waiting for me, but I can't stop my feet leading me inevitably towards the hedge he lies behind. I wake just as he is about to spring, my mouth parched and open, Hot, damp patches livid on my chest and the back of my neck. That's bad enough. But just last night, the dream changed. I was walking down the road when I realized my viewpoint had changed. I could still see from the bird's eye view, but when I looked downwards, my old trainers had disappeared. In their place were two glossy black paws, stretched out to show long, cruel nails. The wave of horror woke me abruptly, sweating, panting, lungs bursting with effort. Is it still me? So now you dream you're a dog. The doctor is making interested notes. He shakes his head. The good news now, he says, I'm very happy that your symptoms have dissipated and that your blood pressure is down. You're feeling better in all respects. But this is very particular anxiety. He puts his pad down. I'd recommend cognitive behavioral therapy to you. It's a good way to address these kind of fears which seemed to come from nowhere. He pauses, head cocked on one side. But I'm curious. Are you sure you've never been bitten by a dog? Scared of one as a child? Heard a story about one that frightened you? I think. Something in that last sentence sounds familiar. I close my eyes and raise a hand to stop him. There is silence. I hear the clock tick on the white painted wall slowly, calmly, measuring the seconds, the minutes, the hours. Yes, I say finally, yes, I heard one. I'm five years old. My grandmother is making a new dress for me in the kitchen. Her clever fingers pulling and tugging the material under the whirring needle of the sewing machine. I am tiptoed stretched head following the flashing movement of the needle. Quietly, I reach out one chubby hand towards it. Stop! shouts my grandmother, suddenly pushing my hand away. I'm opening my mouth to cry when she pulls me onto her lap. I rest my head against her soft, warm neck. Hush now, she says, and her voice is quiet, murmuring, Hush, or the black dog will hear you. The black dog of Kratlau. How could I forget about him? According to my grandmother, the black dog ran beside the road beyond Limerick. If he ran alongside you, that was good, and you'd have a safe journey. 
If he jumped out at you, fate would follow you like the dog itself until you met your bloody end. My grandmother claimed to know a man who died a week after a cycle home. The dog can run at him repeatedly during the stretch of road by the estuary, he told her. Run at him over and over again. So he had to keep cycling and shouting faster and louder until it finally vanished at the foot of the Kratlow Hills. It did him no good, my grandmother says, nipping off the thread with her sharp teeth. Sure wasn't he dead a week later, fallen off the bicycle. God rest him. I get to my feet and leave the surgery, rejecting all offers of referral. There's nothing wrong with me anymore. My fear is real. It is out there in the woods, hiding by the road, waiting for me. That night I dream again. I'm back on the road. This time it's dark. Beyond the hedge is the silver salmon flash of moonlight on water. The air smells different, moister, loamier than before. I stretch myself out. Every muscle in my body lengthens and tautens as I flex slowly behind the hedge. Then I hear it, faint in the distance, the whirl of bicycle wheels. I tense, nearly there. The whirl glows louder, and I'm running quick, sure, low to the ground. The grassy earth under me damp and firm. He sees me. His mouth opens in a perfect round O of shock. I keep running, darting out and back from the hedge. It is intoxicating. The dew-fresh smell, the speed, the frightened, flummy catch of his breath as he pedals faster and faster. The chase goes on. I run in and out, just missing his front wheel until the bike sur- swerves, and with the ripping sound of rubber on tarmac, it stutters and crashes to the ground. I grab his collar in my mouth and start to drag him away. He's crying now in hot, blurting breaths, face contorted, but in the faint light shows me who it is. When I wake up, heart blundering in my chest, everything has changed. There's blood in my mouth and I can't find a cut. There's blood under my nails, but there's no scratches on my legs. I feel the glass shatter of pure high terror in the soft pouch of my stomach. Is it still me? What do you do when you fear most becomes invisible? When it hides inside? I sit down with my mother and my grandmother. Their eyes tell me they know what I'm going to say. My grandmother is already nodding. I have it too, I say simply. My mother's face is gentler than I've ever seen it. She brushes a hand over my hair with a gossamer light touch. We know. Wordlessly, I extend my hands to her and my grandmother. Is it still me? Their eyes are warm, reassuring. We grip each other, palms warm, fingers taut. Together, our weakness is our strength. I feel the power coursing between us from generation to generation, from black dog to black dog. And that was The Black Dog by Tracy Fahey. Um, Just to let you know, there is some information about, because this is based on a legend. So there's information in the book um, about kind of what the story is about and how she meshes the legend with um, kind of with mental illness or anxiety, things like that. But it's it's a fantastic story. Um, I'm so privileged that she uh, submitted it. And I feel really privileged to have actually read it. So we're going to be moving on to the second story. 
Our second story of the evening is called Kozitska, and it's by Gabriella Houston. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about who Gabriella is, and then we'll get to the story. Gabriella is a London-based writer. She was born in Poland and raised in a book-loving household on the nourishing diet of mythologies, classics, and graphic novels. She had spent much of her early school years holed up in the library, only feeling truly herself in the company of Jack London's Trappers and Lucy Maud Montgomery's Red-Headed Orphan, among many others. She came to the the UK at 19 to follow her passion for literature and completed her undergraduate and master's degree at Royal Holloway University of London. After her studies, she worked in publishing for a few years. She now lives with her family in Harrow, where she pursues her lifelong passion for making stuff up. And this story is called Kozitska. And if, Gabriella, if I have this incorrect, please kind of shoot me an email, let me know. Kozitska. The snow crunched under my bare feet, the old familiar sound. I liked it when the February winds brought the deep cold in to turn the sticky snow into the crunchy diamonds of frost. When my teeth were sharp and strong, oh, how I could crunch and crunch too. And white as the snow were my teeth back then. A gust of wind hit my face, my hair flying like a nest of snakes about my head. I felt its movement, the glorious vitality of it, and closed my eyes. My hair used to be spun gold once, reflecting the light like a fine polished mirror. It was now the white of piss-stained snow, its thin, greasy streaks only borrowing life from the Norse winds for a few glorious moments. I stayed clear of the lake tonight. I rarely hung around there anymore, preferring the silence of the forest to the laughter and the giggles of the beauty I was no longer a part of. The silence suited me, as did the cold. Kozitska, they called me, those bitches with their pert breast and their small waists and their hard, sharp teeth. A word of derision and contempt reminding me of all I am no longer. There is no place in the water in the forest for an old Rosaska. And I had lived long enough for the shape of my flesh to fit the twisted mold of my soul. A Rosaska's beauty and charm are her power and her strength. For who would follow her into the waters without it? All the hunger in my guts and the longing in my loins cannot make up for the loss of it. I saw a blue tit peck away at the bit of flesh wrought on the ground. I devoured him, feathers and all. They ticked my throat as the guts and blood washed them down. The metallic taste hit the tip of my palate, a sweet memory which twisted my empty stomach with a longing near as painful as my bleeding gums. A pond, frozen over, beckoned me to its mirrored surface. So many times I had looked into my reflection with pleasure and pride. I edged toward it with half-forgotten hope. The air smelled cold, the fragrance-free aroma which burst the small veins in the nose. Even the sweat, which in the summer has flown profusely under my low-hanging breasts, was frozen now, salty icing on the flesh. I looked in the mirror of ice, willing the reflection to be what it had once been. But the winter comes to all, and mine was a sad season, so unlike the sharp and painful beauty surrounding me. Still I looked, the sagging jowls over the neck of paper and soured milk, 
the belly shriveled and sagging, the fruitless tree of my body long past any hope of blossoms. Still I looked. The wind battered my naked back, no cloth to hide the ugliness. I winced as two eyes lit up under the ice. An utopic, the lowest of trapped spirits tethered to the waters that took his last breath with his own bones glistening white beneath him. He dares laugh at me. He twists his features in cruel mockery, his eyes flashing brightly like the light bait on the predators of the deep. I slam my fist into the ice, causing him to scuttle off for a moment before he returns once more, feeling safe from my wrath beneath the frozen sheet which separates us. I put you there, I scream. I might have, I don't remember. Did I feast on his flesh once the last breath had left his body? He'd have a better chance of remembering than me. What kills us stays in the memory better than what we have killed. Though, of course, he would not know me as I am now, even if it was my soft lips which lured him into the water, my supple flesh which made him leave his senses behind. I come off the ice and walk away, humiliation like pain in my bones. I go back towards the lake, for I must. I will go back into the water through the hole in the ice someone has conveniently cut for fishing. Theirs by intention, ours by providence. I stopped on the edge of the lake, where the frost reeds stuck out of the water like bristle brush. A young man carrying fishing equipment and a small stool from his car walked up to the hole in the ice. He whistled under his breath a tuneless song which jarred me. He wore a jacket with woolen fleece on the inside to keep him warm and a black hat over his ears. I sneaked behind the tree, not wishing for him to see me. I watched as he sat with a pleased grunt on his little stool and poured himself some steaming hot liquid into a little tin cup. His face was handsome enough, with a nicely outlined jaw and a straight nose. The longing which started in my chest spread its hot waves across my body, tightening my throat until I could hardly breathe. I could see beneath the ice the shifts of light as my little sisters were alerted to the man's presence. They would take him. I saw him first, yet they would not care. It goes it's his claim didn't matter. I felt such hatred for them in that moment. That hatred pushed me forward, and before I knew what I was doing, I called out in tones as sweet as molasses. Young man, will you help me? He looked up at me, startled. My voice no longer matched the shape of my flesh, and I could see the shock and the small twinge as he recoiled from the sight of me. I walked up to him as he stood, unsure of himself. He found his voice, though, and pulling off his jacket, he hurried to wrap it up around my arms. Ma'am, what happened? Are you hurt? Here, wrap this around you. Good God, who's done this to you? Let me get my phone. I'll call the ambulance. Let's get you to my car. He pulled out a little black brick from his pocket and started pressing on it feverishly. Before he could stop me, I wrapped my arms around him. Oh, dear boy, you don't know how glad I am that you're here. You've come to save me. I've been so afraid. I pressed my body against his, pushing against the revulsion I could feel in the tensing of his shoulders as his compassion battled against it. I smiled into his chest and took a step forward. I held him close to me now, as my little sister swam around me with shock and resentment, plain as day on their faces. I lured my little victory over them, stroking the young man's soft brown hair and kissing his cold lips. I will hold on to him as long as I can till his flesh falls off his bones. 
I cherish him beyond the needs of my own stomach. I need this reminder here. Here, holding my darling, I am a true Waluska once more. So that was Kozitska, and that was by Gabriella Houston. Um, I find the difference in the two stories to be very interesting because Kozitska was more um, about the idea of being getting older and how your body changes as you get older and you're not the same as you were when you were younger. And I, I feel that every day, by the way, um, because, you know, you, you, hit, you hit your 40s and uh, you get tired. You really do. You get tired. Don't let anybody tell you you don't. You get tired. Um, but now I really appreciated uh, these two, the difference in these two stories, which is why I put them together. Um, I found that uh, Tracy's was more about, you know, mental illness and how it's dealt with and, you know, kind of pushing. They both brought legend and mythology into their stories, but they dealt with body horror in a very similar but yet different way. So I hope you appreciated the stories tonight, folks, and uh, I really, really like them. If you'd like to reach out to the LOHF podcast, our email address is lohfpod at gmail.com. We would love to hear about new releases, news in the community, and suggestions for the podcast. You can find out more about the Ladies of Horror Fiction via our website at ladiesofhorrorfiction.com. As always, this music for the episode was brought to you by Nicholas Gasparini at thedarkpiano.com. Uh, if you want to have some dark ambient music, make sure you go over to his website and check him out. He does lots of different stuff. It's not just like dark, scary music. He, he does lots of different things. So make sure you check him out. Um, I hope you enjoyed the two stories. There were two very different stories. Um, next episode will be the regular ladies of horror fiction episode, uh, on body horror. I get to talk about lots of interesting things, um, and lots of my thoughts coat that you know, or in my brain, which can be a very scary place at times. Just ask Jen sometime. She'll let you know. Um, yeah. So I hope everybody has a great week and, uh, yeah, I will talk to you later. Bye.